another Hi edition there. of Thinking. Thank Life you so going, much for welcoming always. again. Yeah. Okay. So, th- <laughs> I, Thinking Like a Lawyer, uh, the show that we do every week where we recap some of the biggest stories in law. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. You've already heard from Catherine Rubino out of turn from Above the Law. I mean, law, is it and- out of turn if I do it every time I'm on the show? Yep. Still out of turn. Uh, and we are, as always, joined by Chris Williams, also, you know, of Above the Law. And we're here to give your weekly roundup of the stories that we were following last week. And uh, yeah, that's the show, which you probably know if you've been listening for a while. But nonetheless, you have some first time listeners, Joe. That's Never true. Never foreclose well, the possibility of new people discovering the dulcet tones of your voice. That's true. You know, I actually, oh, hold on. This is wow, uh, small yeah. talk. Yeah. yeah th- you know, I was out last week, so I'm on vacation and forgot that that was a thing that we do. <laughs> yeah. So this is small talk. Actually, you know, I, I actually, some woman randomly came up to me the other day and asked me if I did radio or other kinds of performance stuff. And I was like, well, I do host a podcast. So yeah, maybe we have new people. Really? I feel like that's a story that you made up. <laughs> no, uh, no, random, totally randomly. Like I wasn't talking to this person, but I said something in their mere presence and they ran up and said, Ooh, your voice. Do you do radio? Does anyone else find it weird that Joe's the only person on this podcast that gets stories like, yeah, someone came up to me and said X, Y, Z. They really love the sound effects. I, I mean, walk around streets all the time. I never get anything. I mean, in fair, to, I, I, I've been I've been here longer. Like people, you know, <laughs> since we don't do this on video, people may not recognize you yet, but that will come in time and the longer you're here. Mm, I'm going to get a um, Guy Fox mask if and when that happens. <laughs> so how's everyone's week been? Yeah, that, that's right. We've been gone for a week. Uh, we had to have a rebroadcast last week. I hope everybody enjoyed learning a little bit about bar prep. Uh, and now we're back with actual news. And I have COVID. That that's, is, what I brought, that's what I brought back from vacation with me. That is part of our news that Catherine has COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay, that might be the first time I've actually enjoyed the sound effect, and I thought it was completely appropriate. <laughs> Sympathy yeah. for no, me. Uh, yeah. How so? How you feeling? Um. Okay. You know, honestly, if it was, if you know, if we weren't still in the tail end, of, hopefully tail end of a pandemic, I never even would have like clocked it as being particularly sick. But I got back from vacation. I'd you know been on a bunch of planes, and my nose is a little runny. And I was about to go to um, a workout class, and I was like, before I start breathing on people, maybe I should maybe be responsible and take a test. Took the test and definitely came back positive. Um, got myself some of the antiviral medicines, which do have side effects, <laughs> which I am dealing with. Um, Ooh, really? Yeah, apparently about 5.6% of folks get this side effect where you have a, a change in this sense of taste. And I thought that, that would be like the way COVID is, you know, you can't smell, you can't taste or whatever. It is not. It is this thing, it's metal mouth, uh, or different people have different versions, but this is a very common one that I am experiencing, uh, where my mouth just constantly tastes like metal. It doesn't matter if I'm eating something, doesn't matter if I've just brushed my teeth. Like the first day I had it, because I didn't expect it to be like this, I like brushed my teeth like seven or eight times, come in like, what is going on with my mouth? Everything tastes terrible. But hopefully, once the course of antivirals is over, so will this side effect, which, you know, listen, it's a lot better than being on a ventilator, for example. Mm, um, so, yeah. so I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. So top 5%. That's, that's what I've learned. That's where I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, unless there's any other big news, maybe we should talk a little bit about being top 5%. And... No, no. I like to say things. Oh, go for it. 
since the last podcast, I've uh, jumped out of a plane. <gasps> That's oh, awesome. Yeah. I've always wanted to do that. Was it so much fun? It was it was kind of fly. Um my Literally, is, you're like flying. Mm-hmm. That was that was, <laughs> that was the joke. It was it was surprising that how calming it was. Mm. Like I, you know, maybe it's like the I just have a I'm just really at terms with death and dying. Like I, I'm the type of person <laughs> where I I bought my own urn. So like I'm Wow, okay. <laughs> very ready. Um, it's in my living room. It's purple. It's really nice. Shouts out to Prince. But wow. I didn't get like an adrenaline rush or anything. It was just, it was, it, the, I saw trees and they looked like, a, they looked like a, something you'd see in like a Wii game. They looked pixelated. <laughs> and as I got mm. closer to the ground, I was like, oh shit, that wasn't just a model plane. That was an actual <laughs> plane. Um, and it was really cool. It, it was, it was, uh, you know, everybody says, here's cliches because they're, they're common, but they're actually like really good and succinct, like ways to get out of feeling like but can I, and I say that because it was the first time I like I saw the forest for the trees and I was like oh shit this is what they mean <laughs> and um and like uh I was like oh shit I'm actually getting a bird's eye view you know <laughs> so it was cool because it, it, bre- it breathed some life into some cliche and I and I made it back uh in one piece mostly you know yay <laughs> pockets, pockets are a little lighter but it was a good time <laughs> That is certainly uh, more exciting than anything I did. Uh, so that's good. <laughs> I, I have not jumped off it. But I did learn, you know, since you mentioned Prince, I actually saw I saw a thing. I can't verify it. It's one of those things you see on the Internet, but I don't have any reason to assume it's wrong. Did, have you ever heard that there's reason to believe Prince was one of the first people ever to play Oregon Trail? No, the game? I did not. I did not hear that. <laughs> no, but Appar- that does sound like some Prince shit to do. <laughs> Apparent, apparently, the person who invented Oregon Trail was a Minnesota like public school teacher, and he was in the process of inventing it at the same time that Prince attended that school and had that teacher. And so while there's nothing to suggest he actually was one of the first people, everybody's like, well, he would have been in the class the year that this guy invented Oregon Trail or something. So Prince may well have been one of the first people to play Oregon Trail. That's like with a random factoid I read the other day. Amazing. I don't know. Yeah. My, my musical fact, too, and then I guess we can do like the whatever the law stuff people come here for. Right. I think that Cher is one of the first major users of auto tune in a song. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. That, that's, uh, that, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh, no, that was, Cher. that was definitely true. That was definitely <laughs> the first time. Yeah, I think I it was like the that. first song with auto tune that hit like some top whatever, mm-hmm. billboard, top yeah. whatever. Yeah. Mm. All right. I wonder well, if uh, I wonder if T Pain gives Cher a shout out in any of his music. Yeah, <laughs> and, and with that, uh, something that is most definitely not auto tuned. <laughs> we are now done with small talk. So let's talk about the biggest thing going on, which uh, you know we talked about five percents and stuff like that. Uh, this week, we or last week, I guess, we released uh, here at Above the Law our law school rankings, which we do every year. It's a it's another form of rankings of law schools that we do, uh, as opposed, most people are familiar with the U.S. News and World Report rankings. We don't love those. Uh, they certainly have a value, but we have some serious issues with them philosophically, and that's why we created our own companion rankings that people can use as well. Our Well, maybe, Catherine, can you give us a quick update on what our philosophical approach to rankings are that make them so much different? 
our rankings have always been based on the output, not sort of the input. The U.S. News and World Report rankings are based very much on what are the quality of the students that get accepted and what are sort of those benchmarks of the students that get accepted to law schools. What do those look like? Whereas ours puts the finger on the scale more in terms of what is the output? What jobs are people likely to get? How much debt are they likely to come out with? Um, These sort of output-based metrics is is something we care a lot more about. Yeah. So this includes, you know, the jobs that you get and so on, but also some factors involving like the cost and and what are you getting the best bang for your buck, Mm -hmm. tuition buck, basically. So this year's rankings are out. And in first place, Duke Law School is now in first, followed by Virginia and Cornell. Virginia UVA has been in that two slot for a while now. But yeah. Yeah. And Chris, your alma mater clocks in at six with Washington in St. Louis. Listen, there's a, uh, I was watching um, this, uh, Slavoj Žižek is this um, Slovenian philosopher, psychoanalyst, and maybe has a weird thing with his nose. He has a, uh, it's like a Slovenian joke. He asks, there's a genie that comes to a guy and the reputation is that Slovenes are like misers. He's like, I'll give you one thing, but I have to give it double to your neighbor. His response is, take out one of my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was cool to see Washu's placing, but Vanderbilt was above us, so I don't have that much joy in it. Like, I guess it's cool to be <laughs> it's cool to be top six, but it sucks that they're top five. <laughs> so. It is amazing how Wustel and Vanderbilt have developed this bitter rivalry because not they even, are the- not even I don't know if it's a general thing. It's just in my heart of hearts, it's like defund the police. Fuck Vanderbilt. I love my mom. Like, I don't even want to say it's like a, I don't even want to say it's a systemic thing. This is just a Chris idiosyncrasy. And your mom no. actually listened to the podcast, so you're comfortable letting mom know that she's three. Hey, no, no. I, hey, listen, listen. My mom also knows I have heart problems. So, like, the ranking is being, is just, the bad ranking is just a part of my biology. My mom loves her son. So, I'm sure she'll accept this. So, so you're, you're number one on her list. Oh, I better be. I better she's, be. Because that's what she tells me. That's what she tells me. <laughs> but so, as you know, like the left ventricle, the right ventricle, they're all very close. They're all very yeah. close, you know. Not in me. My, my <laughs> actual heart condition means that that isn't true. But moving <sighs> along, uh, Vanderbilt actually rocketed up the numbers this year. Uh, they, they picked up, I believe, 10 slots, uh, which was a kind of ridiculous jump uh, in these rankings. Uh, it, I guess... The biggest and and part and the reason for that I'll I'll explain a little bit of that. Uh, the reason for that is that they both had an increase in their job numbers, uh, both more jobs coming out as well as uh, more uh, more jobs coming out, uh, more graduates getting jobs when they uh, walk away from school, as well as a big dip in the underemployment number, which is people who you know, have jobs, but aren't really jobs that, you know, you want to have as a lawyer necessarily with a degree that you have to pay off. But they also had a giant leap in their quote unquote quality job number, which is a factor that we include, which weights the scale of jobs a little bit towards NLJ 250 firms and federal clerkships, the sort of jobs that are a little bit more prestigious. We put a thumb on the scale for those. Obviously, if you can get those, that's a reason to like your law school. So that was the big reason for the jump for Vanderbilt. Uh, One question that I had, which a 
you know, former dean from a law school reached out to me to chat about these numbers a little bit. And they raised a concern, and I want to hear what you both think about this, which is that this dean was concerned because the thumb on the scale towards these big firms and federal clerkships, the argument was this is overlooking some high-end public interest jobs, which we probably should be counting, they argued, because given loan forgiveness programs that a lot of law schools have, the decision to take that lower salary at that public interest job, given the loan forgiveness programs and repayment options and stuff like that, means that it actually is the sort of quality job we should be counting because we're, we're tend to cut we we put this thumb on the scale because if you paid a lot of money in tuition and you're making a bunch of money, that's more important than if you aren't. And the argument was, well, but if the tuition is lower for those folks, then maybe that should be counted uh, and therefore not unnecessarily weight the scales towards corporate law when it could count public interest. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I'm kind of I kind of conflicted about it. I mean, I definitely see that argument. And I do think that there are a lot of public interest jobs that are incredibly prestigious and probably should be counted. But I think that any effort to count them would have to be very much tied to what the repayment programs are like at individual schools, which do mm -hmm. vary wildly from right. place to place. Because, you, you know, just saying, oh, we have uh, we have some sort of loan forgiveness program and not investigating the quality of it, how many people who are in public interest actually get access to that program, all of this kind of stuff. It's just a lot more data points that you'd have to in, in, include in there. You can't just say, well, there is some some form of loan forgiveness and there's public interest. I think it has to be a lot more nuanced than that to truly capture the schools that are doing a good doing good by their public interest law students versus ones that are kind of filling out a, a checkbox as opposed to, you know, actually having a quality program. My initial um, impression is that one of the important things that comes with thinking like a lawyer is recognizing sophistry. And that seems like a good argument. But also I think about, one, what high paying <laughs> public interest jobs? Like maybe, I mean, they, they are there, they, they do exist, but there's not nearly as much discussion about what they are and how to access them besides maybe like some antitrust gigs, maybe if you consider. Well, I, I don't or? think that they're talking, I don't think they're saying that those jobs actually pay big money, like like big law money. I think what they're saying mm. is that given the fact that a certain percentage of their loans are going to be forgiven mm. or they have access to a lower tuition, that less of their, less of their salary is going towards serving loans. Therefore, they're sort of, their sort of uh, disposable income is a higher percentage of their sort of total salary. Oh, true. But I mean, isn't that isn't that uh, still over like a 10 year period and the re and the repayment and the and the forgiving process forgive for loan forgiveness process itself is still like not even necessarily on stable terms. Like I've heard stories. I don't know how how frequently these happen to people that say that say initially like, oh, I'm working this particular job that'll qualify me for loan forgiveness. And then years later, they discover that because of like a paperwork snafu or something along those lines, or maybe even depending on who's in office, the uh, reliability of that is up is up in the air. And that's a lot harder to quantify, especially compared to like, say, oh, this person is making 250K a year. Like there's at least a, a concrete thing happening presently that can be weighed rather than wondering how things will play out in 2032. And even then you're still making like what, 50K, maybe 70K if you find a really good, good job. So like, sure, you have 
the the amount of money that you're able to spend is a greater relation to the amount that you're making, but still that's like what? You're you're still probably, you know, scraping by. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to really look at that and actually say, oh, this is this is thriving. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're not gonna pay public interest jobs aren't going to pay as much. Uh the idea being since because this is a thing. People ask about this. Well, you're you're privileging big law. And to some extent we are, but I don't think that our philosophy is that we're privileging big law because we think big law is better. We're privileging big law to the extent that that's the best proxy we have for, hey, you walked out of school with $200,000 of debt. Are you going to be able to repay that? And by counting big law jobs in this way, we can say, yes, they these people are being put in a position where they might be able to repay that. And if they are working at a job that's only making you know, 60 grand a year, they are not in a position to do that, which is why the the, the dean's argument makes some sense, because if there are these programs that mean that, no, you aren't walking out with $200,000 in debt, so therefore the $60,000 a year job isn't as big a trade-off, fine. But like, I think Catherine's right. It's just, it's so hard to capture that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and again, I Chris's point is also, also taken as well. Yeah, you know, different they change over time. Plenty of people have found themselves on the on the losing end of thinking that they were going to have much more generous terms of, of their law school debt. And I don't think that the I don't think that the ATL system necessarily privileges big law as much as it is putting a real uh, sort of lived experience on the what servicing debt for the next twenty years or ten years or whatever it is is actually doing to you. And, you know, there's there's lots of reasons, you know, you can look at all the reasons why people think that we should cancel student debt generally, but servicing loans, if you're not thinking about that as a big part of your life, you're not really, you're not making an accurate judgment as to what your financial prospects are and the ways that those impact a lot of other things. So I don't think it puts the finger on big law as much as it says, that debt's bigger than you think it is. And I, right. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people oh yeah, it's fine. I'll just take out loans. You can get all these loans. And it's true. And I took them out myself. But like, I think that uh, actually thinking through the ways in which those giant loans will continue to impact your life. And you may find yourself, you know, golden handcuffed to jobs you hate. And, you know, these are all real impacts of deciding to go to law school unless you can pay it off in the, in the get-go. And I think that that has to be accounted for. I also think just as like a question of a method given that the loan forgiveness is over like a 10-year period. I think you also have to have have symmetric of factoring how many people start doing public interest and then switch over to doing big law or something, especially with all that long period of time. I have friends, and these are people that like graduate from like T4 school. I have a a friend who graduated from Harvard Law, who did very literally well. Like I was making, I had a public interest gig, I was making 90K a year and I can't, and I can't afford to live on that. I have to get a big law gig. And, and they were very gung-ho about this is why, this is what I'm doing. This is what's important to me. But even after having a few years of that lifestyle, they're like, I can't, I can't afford this. Um, so like just the, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how you would quantify that. It's data that I think in the ideal world of worlds we would have, and we mm-hmm. could, we could granularly grab, hey, this selection of the student body that's going into mm-hmm. a public interest job has this, but it, it, it's just so hard. And that's and, why I'm yeah. like, this is some good sophistry because like I see the merit to it, but I'm like, how would you actually gauge that? How would you gauge that? Yeah. And like, how would you weigh it? And I think you could gauge it 
for individual schools. But I think, if, as, and this goes to Catherine's point, like I, I, I could grab, say, CUNY's numbers, and I'm sure they would report, you know, a, a law school that is very famous for putting people into public interest work. I could probably get their data and work out here's what the real cost of these people who are going into public interest jobs are as far as a percentage of being able to service their loans and yada, yada, and, and get something. But I would have to do that for every law school in order to do the ranking. And the advantage, theoretically, of, I think, the an advantage of this system is that Columbia, for instance, does put a bunch of people into these sorts of jobs and does have repayment programs. And I think a lot of the reason they do have these that, these repayment programs and stuff are because they have, you know, folks going to big law who come back and give money to the school. And so in some ways, it's a proxy that hopefully, you know, is is self-reinforcing that the people who are getting the 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 good repayment programs and the good public interest jobs are generally at schools where people are also going on to these other big law jobs, hopefully. Uh, that That's what we're trying to capture. Obviously, nothing's perfect, but I wanted to, we're, we, we've been going for a while here, and I do have some other topics to get to, but one thing that I wanted to focus on that I think is interesting about these rankings is that Yale, Harvard, Stanford, these schools not doing all that great in the above-the-law rankings, which is fascinating because, like you would say, if the point of this is to go out and get a good job and get good bang for your buck. How do we end up in a situation where these perennially top-ranked schools aren't there? And, you know, a reason is they charge more for people getting these jobs than some other T14 level schools would, which is a reason why a school like Duke would outperform them in our rankings. But what interests me about it is watching it over time because our methodology hasn't really changed since the first time we put out these rankings. And when we did, we captured a snapshot where Yale, Harvard, and Stanford were still top-ranked firms in our own rankings. Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, that was, you know, like when you're coming up with a methodology, we, we figured Yale probably should be first. And it's not like we gained it to cause that. But obviously, when we created a ranking system that spit out Yale was still first, we, or Harvard, one of the, one of those schools was first, I can't remember what, but when we spit out a system that put them generally at the top, we felt like, okay, this is still credible. It seems as though, even though we have a different philosophy, we shouldn't have too radically a different philosophy, right? Like the, part of the reason why the inputs are good is it's going to lead to good outputs. And so those should be close. There should be differences, but close. And without changing our methodology, they've diverged, uh, which I think is almost more interesting than the year-to-year -year rankings, to my mind, because it suggests that the snapshot we took might have actually been part of a longer-term trend of these schools separating themselves as far as their value proposition. Uh, and it's gotten to a point where, you know, Stanford is languishing in our, in our numbers, having gone down in every uh, metric that we use. Good jobs, underemployment, you know, quality employment, clerkship, everything went down for them. And yet what they charge uh, is up. So this is more than a, this is, this is just like a, a thought, maybe a little scatterbrained, mm -hmm. but I wonder to what degree you have to factor in that because of the nature of the prestige of like the, the higher ranking places, the people are just 
doing different things with the JDs. Like I'm sure it's easier yeah. to parlay the prestige of a a Yale or a, not yeah of a Yale or a Harvard JD and to parlay that to something that's completely different. Like maybe like doing it like a, a yeah. friend, going with a friend's tech startup or or like oh, to what degree does it make sense to say that oh if the metric is looking at how many how these people can use this platform to get a job to pay off, but the people are coming from generational wealth where they don't really necessarily even need a job to do the thing that they want to do. They want the resume line. They don't need the money. They want the right. resume line more than anything else. And they'll pay whatever it costs for it. Right. Or like, like, cause, cause I'm pretty sure the metric doesn't have, I'm not that this, not that I'm saying this is the reason most people go to a highly prestigious law school, but it is the thing that happens. Like there's, there's not a way of determining if somebody goes, sends their son or daughter to Yale, Harvard or Stanford to find a husband or a wife. And then they become like a person that, you know, lives with a big earner or something that they're still able to like pay off the loans and whatnot. But it would look it would look like they might look as if they're unemployed. So I don't know. Like, I don't know what these people well, are doing with the JDs after they get them. Well, and, and historically in our rankings, uh, the, the first school to kind of take a dip in our snapshot rankings over the years was Yale, which we thought made sense. Because as I've said, long said, you don't go to Yale to be a lawyer. You go to Yale to become the dictator of a small country like they, these folks go on and do other stuff like that. Uh, you know, shadow lead government sort of things, as opposed to being lawyers. And so when that started to happen, I thought, well, that makes sense within the confines of what our rankings are meant to capture. But everybody, yeah. Anyway, well, we've gone on far too long about this. And I think we missed a few phone calls about it, huh? I mean, we were talking, so it makes sense. Oh, yeah. So, but it would be great if we had, uh, you know, a virtual reception service to, you know, deal with that for Help us. us yeah. Is there something like that? There is. So let's let's hear from Posh. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. All right, so we've gone on a really long time, so I think we have time for one more uh, quick segment. Uh, Let's talk about what's going on at Ropes & Gray uh, Law Firm. Catherine, this is something you wrote about. What's up? So like many big law firms, and, and frankly, employers in general, we're all kind of trying to struggle. What does this post where, oh, I mean, the fact that I actually have COVID, we're, we're hopefully at least at the tail end of our shared pandemic experience, you know, put, put a pin in monkeypox for a moment. So the question of what happens now is, is kind of an open one. Are people coming back to the office five days a week? Is there some sort of a hybrid involved? Uh, are people doing fully remote work? By and large, in the legal profession, fully remote work has, has fallen off. There was a, an article recently about, you know, that those kind of fully remote jobs are harder and harder to find. It's not really a thing anymore. Um, but most law firms have kind of settled into a hybrid model uh, where they're asking folks to come in between two and four days a week. Most people have settled around three. Some firms have kind of said, you know, these are the days we prefer you come, but you need to come in three days a week. And Ropes and Gray is one of those firms. Back in May, they, you know, they got a ton of kudos a few months ago for putting out like this kind of phased back to the office, you know, whole firm, the whole law firm's open. You can kind of come whenever you want. Here it is. And kind of ramping up to, um, to the beginning of May when they said, 
you know, we really, our expectation is for attorneys um, and everyone to come in at least three days a week. And we would really like to see you on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which, you know, listen, 2019, and you've written this in the past too, Joe, but if in 2019 you said, hey, there's a big law firm and you only have to come into the office three days a week, everyone would be like, that is the best thing ever, right? Best thing since sliced bread. This is, this is it. This is the money. This is the future. But, you know, COVID. So as a result, what's happened at the firm is that not everyone showed up those three days. Um, and it's been over a month at this point. And one of the co-chairs of the litigation department sent uh, an email to folks in, in litigation saying, hey, for I think three out of the last four weeks, you have not been here on the three days that we asked you to. We really need you to be here. Tuesday, you know, these are the days we are asking you to be here. If there's some sort of specific reason why you can't, we're happy to make accommodations. But the expectation is, in fact, three days a week. And, you know, folks at the firm have been kind of pissy about it. Uh, at least t- uh, ATL tipsters, I guess the only the folks who are upset are the ones who are going to reach out. So I think it's kind of, a, you know, some sort of sampling bias here. But folks are pissed. And, you know, but on the other hand, you know, you, I think that there's some sympathy to be had for the firm. First of all, because it is, in fact, still a hybrid schedule. You still get to work from home Mondays and Fridays. You, you know, there's plenty of flexibility, I think, built into that. They also are willing to make more accommodations if, you know, your specific set of circumstances require it. But also because... You know, there's also a ton of information out there saying that it's summer associate season, summer associates who had the last two years of their law school career remote are not interested in fully remote work. They want it. I think it was 92 percent of summer associates surveyed said that if an in-person opportunity to go to the office was available during their summer associate program, they would take it. So if you're having 92% of summer associates come into the office, you need people there. You need people there to take them to lunch. You need people there to show them the ropes. You need people there to, to kind of be an example of what the environment, what the culture of your firm is really like. So I think that, you know, it's kind of a rock and a hard place, I think, for a lot of these firms. And this is just one of the firms where we have a very clear example of how it's playing out there. I just want to give you kudos for uh, saying show them the ropes instead of showing them the ropes in gray because I would not. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I would not have had the self control to not do that. I did. I did. I did catch that. That was that was funny. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it, like it, I'm very sympathetic. Uh, generally, that's gonna be speaking. the title of the episode. By the way, showing them the ropes in gray. <laughs> no, I. I, I, I'm generally sympathetic. <laughs> Boo. Yeah. No, I, I'm generally sympathetic to associates, but like, mm-hmm. uh, like three days a week in the office seems like a dream come true, uh, especially if you aren't for some of these firms, they're taking a model of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, whatever. Uh, other firms are leaving it much more flexible for those that are leaving it much more flexible, like where you, you do have the ability to say, you know, Tuesday mornings, I have to do, you know, volunteer at the school for a couple hours to be with my kids and then whatever, like all of these options that we've said people need for years uh, to help make a more congenial and collegial law firm. We finally have. And now that it's being offered, we're getting people complaining that they don't want to be forced back into the office. And I think a lot of this is still the lingering fear of COVID. Obviously, infections are up, as evidenced by this very podcast. (laughs) But I just feel like the three-day-a-week model is is amazing and in jeopardy as people don't adopt it. Uh, We layoffs are likely to happen on some at some level Mm. uh the 
lateral market is likely to slow down on some level. And the leverage that we currently have to help build a future model of legal work that is more humane is is diminishing. And if we, you know, if we don't jump wholeheartedly into this, I see it going back to everybody being in the office five to seven days a week because that's just the way the world has always worked. Uh, it's almost like and, you, can't, you can't have nice things, right? So yeah. they're going to take it all away. And some yeah. firms do have more aggressive policies. Some have four days a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Some, you know, said four days a week, but, you know, staring at them at least four days a week. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I think it's, I think we're very much in a moment of transition. And I, and I am sympathetic, especially, you know, as someone who's currently, you know, dealing with COVID. But I think that, that it also behooves associates to understand the perspective of the firms as well as their own personal perspective, because, you know, no matter how long they're planning at being at the firm, you have to think about what the big picture is, I think. And that's also a skill that behooves you as an attorney. Yeah. I say this with, with no data to point to, I blame those damn K through JDs who this is their first <laughs> job. Cause I don't think, there's no, there's no way that people that know the experience of going to work and having to know that Steve is down the hall wants this, like when they could work from their living room, and like it, I, I just, I just don't get it. Like of all the jobs I've ever had, my living room is way more preferable, even if there's free coffee in the break room, and it's like this opens up so many potential ways of living. Like you don't have to worry about paying more rent because you want to have a place that's near the office. Like you could literally work wherever you want or just commute those three days. Like who would pass up on this? I don't, yeah. I don't get well, it. Well, I, and it seems as though they, they have been used to working fully remote because mm-hmm. obviously during the lockdown, that's what we had to do. And they're kind of operating on the, well, why even go back three? We were able to do our jobs, not going into the office any days a week, which is true. But had a limitation to it. And that limitation is mentorship. This is a thing that I've mentioned a few times. It's like, if you're a fourth or fifth year associate, yeah, you don't need to go into the office for you, per se. Mm -hmm. You can do your job remotely. But first years don't know how to do that. And they're not going to learn it from formalized training programs because where you actually learn things as a first year is by doing something stupid in front of a second and third year who go, oh, don't oh, no. do that. Oh, no, 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 no. Right, and and that's that, that sort of passive learning is where you learn stuff. And so, yeah, the fifth years don't need it necessarily, but they need to be there to train everybody else. And, you know, three days a week seems like a good one for that. And another aspect of it that I hadn't really thought of until – a partner at a big firm that I know mentioned it to me. It's also valuable to those fifth years from a client development process. And it's not, you know, people think client develop, business development, client development is like going golfing and dinners and old boys club stuff. But it's not, it, it, these days, especially on the transactional side, client development is becoming friends with Steve down the hall, who's mm-hmm. about to get a job working at Goldman and be in a position to hand out business. Uh, being friends with your own colleagues is actually the way in which you end up getting business. Uh, and so you may you may be a litigator, but you befriend the capital markets kid who's about to go over to Goldman and like you might end up getting work from that. And that's where business development really happens. And that's the sort of thing that cross department within your own firm relationships, that requires being there too. So like, 
it just strikes me as though five days a week wasn't necessary, but three seems like a pretty good way of getting your cake and eating it too. And the way in which people aren't enjoying that uh, and flocking to it, I think puts the whole experiment at risk. Anyway. Yeah, the outcome looks pretty gray. Yeah, ah, it does look gray. Yeah, ropes, no, good yeah. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you did yeah. there. I see what you I'll, did there. I'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> so, there we go. There we go. Fair, fair, yeah. fair. So with all that said, I think we are done for the week. So thanks for listening. You should be subscribed to the show so you get new episodes when they come out. You can also give us reviews. Stars, write something. Helps out. Let's people know that we're a legal podcast that they can be listening to. Uh, you should be following us on social media. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, the numeral one there. And not all those words, just letting you know it's a numeral. Uh, Chris is at Rights for Rent. You should be listening to our other shows. Catherine's the host of The Jabot. I am a panelist on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. You should listen to the other Legal Talk Network programs. Uh, you should be reading Above the Law because that's where you can see these and more stuff stories as they come out you should follow at atl blog that's our uh, handle for the blog itself and you should uh thank posh for sponsoring and i think that brings Peace. us to everything yep uh we'll be back next week see you next week